Or maybe uh, just some booster wants to take them out to dinner, their team out to dinner a lot, or slip them a little bit of cash under their under in an envelope to help them out for the semester or something. Like, why can't why why is there even a rule? Like, why does anyone think it's even okay? There's any kind of rule preventing that. If you or I, Dave, were to go give a chemistry student five thousand dollars an envelope and be like, "Hey, study hard this semester. This will help take care of your stuff," we'd be looked at as supporters of education. Welcome to the Edge of Sports Podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week we talk to the sharpest knife in the box on all things NCAA, DC journalist and editor Patrick Ruby. He is the person you want to talk to when you're looking at the intersection of the NCAA and exploitation. We're going to talk to Patrick in just a moment. I also have some choice words about Mike Trout and his new eye-popping mega contract and what it means for baseball and the neoliberalization of your favorite local team. Also got Just Stand Up and Just Sit Your Ass Down awards and more. But first, let's go to Patrick Ruby. Okay, so NCAA Word Association, the first words and thoughts that pile out of your head when I say March Madness. Exploitation. Hmm. Oh, and feel feel free to explicate further if you like. You don't have to hit me back with one word. Well, okay. So, I'll, 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 yeah, no. I mean, so why do I say that? I mean, at this point, I think it's an argument that's pretty well known. Uh, the NCAA itself, right, generates almost all of its money through March Madness. So selling the TV rights to the NCAA tournament essentially generates almost a billion dollars a year that the NCAA takes. And it does distribute most of that back to its member schools and athletic programs and stuff like that but they also keep a lot for their own executives and their own enforcement department and everything else and to put into their own giant reserve they've got like hundreds of million dollars in a reserve by the way no one knows this um i mean it's been reported just nobody really understands this i think they have something like 500 million dollars in a cash reserve it might be more than that um what are they doing sitting on that money right it's a bigger scandal than harvard's giant endowment i mean i don't i don't understand when they say there's no money for athletes like they're actually sitting on a pile of cash so that's, that's another piece of the exploitation. But you know, the fundamental exploitation is, is the one that everybody knows at this point, which is the labor on the court during March Madness and all season long. It's the athletes. And because the NCAA's amateurism rules, they're not allowed to realize their full value. You know, for most of those athletes, the peak four years of athletic value in their life, call them the earning years if you want, of their athletic skills, are when they're in college, when they're in college basketball. College basketball is a lucrative, big business. There's nothing wrong with that. It's a very entertaining television product. It's a very entertaining product in person. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with selling that. There's nothing wrong with commercializing that. What's wrong is shutting the labor force out from getting a fair share of the revenue that's being generated. And the only reason they're shut out is because of the NCAA's amateurism rules. Uh, that's exploitation. That's like the textbook definition of exploitation. The management class in this case, the NCA, the member schools of the NCA, the athletic departments, the university administrators, the presidents, you know, we shouldn't let anybody off the hook here. Uh, they're all benefiting. They are taking the surplus value away from these athletes that they'd otherwise be getting without amateurs and rules. Uh, not every athlete, by the way, would necessarily get more than they already get under amateurs. You know, athletes are paid. We should be clear about that. They are paid right now in the form of scholarships and sometimes stipends and sometimes they get other awards on the side 
So there is no, like, also there's no set definition of amateurism. It's whatever the NCAA says it is. But their pay is not free. They're not free to negotiate. If I am Zion Williamson and I'm being recruited by every school in the country because I bring a tremendous amount of value, I can't go to Duke. Hey, Kentucky's offering me a million dollar signing bonus. Why don't you offer me a million and a half and I'll sign with you? That's different than everybody else in the country. Every other student, every other professor, every other coach, every other administrator, every other university president, everybody else who doesn't work in the higher education industry, that's illegal. You can't have competitors for your services get together and agree, we're only going to pay you X amount of dollars. And I'm not saying that it's illegal in some abstract way. It's illegal and something that the U.S. government enforces every day. Back in the 1990s, the NCAA schools tried to limit the amount of salary that schools could pay to assistant basketball coaches. They went to court, to federal antitrust court. The NCAA made many of the same arguments it makes in terms of limiting athletes to amateurism. The NCAA got its ass kicked in antitrust court. It lost, and there's something when you lose antitrust court called trebling, which is that your damages get tripled. <laughs> like It's sort of an extra punishment that we as a society put down for violating that kind of antitrust law, and the NCAA got troubled. Uh, it's not just the NCAA. Uh, uh, two years ago, a very um, high-profile case, Google, Apple, some of the other big tech firms, they basically were agreeing to not poach each other's employees. They were agreeing to not compete over what they would compensate employees. It's exactly the same kind of thing that the NCAA schools do now. They also went, they also, they, they, they didn't go to trial because they had to settle the Department of Justice because they knew they had a losing case. So when I, when I say exploitation, this is what I mean. When I, say it's, it, when I say it's exploitation, it's not just that the athletes aren't receiving value. They're also not being protected under the law like the rest of us are. That's one of the things here that is really disturbing about all this. Um, Mark Amert. Well compensated. <laughs> this gets to my point. Mark Emmert gets, I don't know, I think the last time his, his uh, salary, every, every couple of years, so every year we find out what he made because of the NCAA's like, tax returns, but we always find out like a year or two there's a delay. So like we'll find out his 2017 salary sometime this spring, I believe. USA Today always reports it. By the way, there's a guy named Steve Berkowitz at USA Today who covers the finance of college sports. He is invaluable. Yeah, he's the guy you want to follow. If you want to understand, if you want to know who's getting what in terms of money, like you should also follow him on Twitter because it's hilarious. He's constantly tweeting about like, oh, you know, Maryland uh, just won its first round of CA game. The coach got another hundred thousand dollar bonus, or like they get like academic bonuses. Coaches literally get academic bonuses. The players like get a certain GPA, and the coach gets paid. That's how back to exploitation. That's crazy too. Um, but Mark Emmert is making well over a million dollars a year heading the NCAA. And the NCAA is basically just a trade group. I mean, the biggest thing they do, they, two, they, they do two really big things. They negotiate that TV contract for March Madness and collect that money and redistribute it to their schools. And then they spend a lot of time in court defending their ability to not have to like let athletes freely negotiate or pay. The NCAA spends tens of million dollars in court. On this over is the that last partly with that cat is that partly what that cash reserve is for for legal I battles? think some of that cash reserve is like in case they ever lost any of these cases you might be right like they might be worried about paying damages 
I do think some of that cash reserve is going to um, – there's a previous case. Uh, it was about scholarships. The, the reason that the NCA now offers stipends, right, those cost of living stipends you've probably heard about along the, – the, the rules changed. So, that, and so they can, the schools will offer you not only an athletic scholarship, but also they are free to offer you a cost of living stipend. The reason that changed is because they were sued and lost. And I think there, I think there were some, some damages that they had to pay. Um, I'm not sure. And it, it may not, have, I, I might, it may not have been damages. It may have been like almost the idea of, of, of some back pay. I have to go back and look at the exact ruling um, and then what happened on appeal with that. Cause of course they're always going to appeal every last dollar and try to <laughs> weasel out of what they have to pay. That's kind of normal in any lawsuit. I, I don't want to say the NCA is particularly villainous for that. Anybody who loses in court and has to pay money is always trying to pay as little as possible. Um, but yeah, I do think some of the reserve is is for that that anticipation of like, what if we lose or what if things change? Um, but Mark, but Mark Emmert, you know, like I said, he's really really well paid. Uh, the whole point is the reason why he is so well paid in part, and why these we have you know multiple athletic department, uh, you know, heads of athletic departments in co- college sports making over a million dollars. Why we have coaches making well over you know six figure salaries. Uh, why we have strength coaches making 600 grand a year, you know, why we have teams that like, you know, like football teams that have like 15 different quality control guys making good salaries, you know, why we have uh, athletic departments like Ohio state that have like 400 plus employees. All of this goes back to that exploitation. It's like, if you are in this really lucrative industry and the amount you have to pay your labor, which is your most important input, by the way, that's the thing everyone's wants to watch. That's why you have value. That's a lot of why you have value. You have value in your brands too. The schools bring a lot of value to the table by being Ohio State and not like Columbus, you know, Columbus basketball, right? That does matter. But the labor is the most important thing. You don't have games if you don't have athletes on the field and you don't have uh, people excited about it if those athletes aren't good. Well, if your costs for those are fixed, you never have to compete for them. You never have to pay them more. You don't have to bid. What do you do with all extra money? Right. You're reminding me of, it's like duck tails. I keep thinking of, of like <laughs> Scrooge McDuck diving into the big pile of gold coins or right. Mr. Burns right. and Smithers going money fight, money fight. It has to go somewhere, right? So where does it go to? Yeah. Well, it goes to the other places where you can compete, where, where there is no amateurism fixing prices for, for, the, for the rest of your workforce. So you could pay your athletic directors more. You can pay yourself more. You can pay Mark Emmerich more. You pay your coaches more. These schools fight over getting these coaches, right? They pay them a lot. They compete to get them. You could build these big facilities so, to try and induce your recruits to come there. I can't pay you directly if you're Zion Williamson, but I could say, come to Duke. Look at this amazing weight room I have. You know, look at this incredible dorm I have. Like, it's, it's imagine in your own line of work, anyone out there who's listening, think about what you do for a living. And imagine if everybody in your line of work all got paid the same fixed amount, but you still had competing firms that were trying to beat each other. How would they try to get the best software engineer or the best auto mechanic or the best plumber or the best uh, you know, project manager to come sign on? Well, they might start building incredible facilities. I might say like, hey, come to work here. We've got a five-star chef with a five-star restaurant in our building. Yeah, I mean, like, we can't pay you any more than the other guy, but we'll offer you this instead. I mean, that's essentially what's happening in college sports. Wow. So that's that's that gets to, like I said, Mark Emmerich, well compensated. There's a reason he's so well compensated. 
Let's try this one. Uh, Michigan State coach Tom Izzo. Like, what comes to mind? Temper tantrum. There was a good debate about this this week. Um, I think most people that were watching college basketball, he saw uh, he he um, was not happy with with one of his players during a game. Um, a, a freshman. Think, yeah, not happy being an understatement, and was basically screaming at him. He kind of like jab punched him. I don't know if he even connected, but like kind of like did a jab punch, and then he just like lost his cool completely to where like other players were restraining him. Um, which is a, kind of an unusual, well, maybe not an unusual situation in college sports, but unusual to see it in the middle of a live game on television. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was, I was involved in this a little bit myself on Twitter, but there was a big debate over uh, this is unacceptable behavior versus, hey, this is just tough coaching. Suck it up. You know, this is, this is, this is what happens in sports, right? And I definitely fall on the side of the debate of this is a temper tantrum. Call it what it is. Uh, if this happened in any workplace in America, uh, you'd be lucky. Uh, you might not be fired, but you'd definitely be lucky if the worst thing that happened to you is that other people in your office walked away rolling their eyes. Um, At the very least, HR gets a phone call. Yeah, yeah. You're a, you're a 50-plus-year-old man having a temperamental meltdown in the middle of your workplace at one of your coworkers, or in this case, one of your, your, your coworker who's a subordinate. Um, that's, 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 that, and, and almost all of us who are adults, we'd be like, that's ridiculous. Like you might even laugh at that person. Like what is wrong with you? But in sports, this stuff is not only accepted, it's kind of celebrated. It's like, valorized. It's a huge, long cultural um, deference and worship of the tough coach figure, right? Coach is doing this because he loves me, because I need discipline, because, you know, daddy only hits you because he loves you. There's a lot of that. I'm not saying he's hitting people, but it's like, there's a lot of that, like, that's just tough coaching. It's okay to be an a-hole. It's okay to be abusive. It's okay to, like I said, have a temper tantrum because you're a coach and you didn't get what you want. Like the player didn't do exactly what you wanted or something went wrong on the floor. I just look at it as like, you know, that's what five-year-olds do when the world doesn't go their way. But usually we grow up and we learn that that's not cool. That's not acceptable. Not only is it not cool to be abusive to another person at your workplace or not your workplace, just in your life, but it says something about you. Like you shouldn't, you shouldn't be satisfied with yourself blowing your top like that. And Tom Izzo was very satisfied with himself. He was extremely self-righteous about it afterwards. He was very defensive. He said something about like, what did he say? Someone like, oh, if I so some journalist, he's like, who asked him about? It, he's like, oh, if I worked at a newspaper, you knew your job, I'd hold you accountable. And it's like, I don't, I can't mm-hmm. speak. I mean, I know there are lots of bad bosses out there in the workplace. There are people that do this, by the way, outside of sports. I'm not saying it doesn't happen, but how we deal with it's different. And I can tell you, like, if that happened to me, if my boss or editor like yelled at me like that, jabbed a fist in my chest at the office, like, it'd be lucky again, it'd be lucky if it was just HR. Like, if that happened at a bar, right? If that happens in even some offices, like, lucky not get your ass kicked. And that's their aspect of this that's kind of abusive. It's like, this is someone who's in a position of power doing it to subordinate. So it's kind of like bullying as well. Yeah, and you're and right. Izzo, 
Izzo made a, an immediate comment. His first comments were, and I think he realized he stepped in it because he, he, he elided those comments afterwards, but he made the employer-employee comparison. Yeah, which, which then is, raises the question: Is it, well, so, so so it is a business then? It, it yeah, is a I mean, job. look, let's let's be frank. If it was if it was a legally protected employer employee relationship in college sports, one of the reasons there's so much of this. And look, I don't want to compare Izzo to to, to Mike uh, Mike Rice back at Rutgers because this is I don't think this is this is similar, but also completely different in degree, right? Like what he was mm-hmm. doing. Um. I like this thing with Izzo. I think this is the kind of thing like he blew his top. He should. I mean, it's one of the things where it's like you, this is the kind to me. It's the kind of thing. It's like you could apologize, understand that you're wrong, and move forward. And like like that. I'm not saying it's good to blow your top, but like there's a different. Like, I don't know if it's like a huge pattern of behavior or what or not. Right. Like people do have temper tantrums even as adults, and we can't forgive them. If you know you're wrong, you acknowledge it, you make amends. It's okay. You know, something like the guy at Rutgers was totally different. It was like a huge pattern of like way more abusive behavior that, and he wasn't at all apologetic about it. Um, but that kind of stuff, whether it's something like Izzo or something as extreme as Rutgers, or we see other cases where uh, there's just in general, it's all abuses that are tied to the power dynamic in college sports and also outside of college sports. Same thing that happens in someone like Harvey Weinstein or same thing that happens in offices with really bad bosses who get away with stuff. Or people who are really important to the company that get away with really bad behavior and abusive behavior, their coworkers. Mm. It happens more easily when the people at the bad end of the abuse don't have the power to stand up for themselves or change it and have to just take it. And in college sports, you have a perfect environment for that because the administrators, the coaches, they have all the power. The athletes have none. They don't even have the same rights the rest of us do. They can't have a union. They don't have contracts like like everyone else at the university does. They're not protected by like, the, the federal courts won't protect them under antitrust law. Like if you're an athlete, even if you didn't like this and didn't find it acceptable, why would you speak out? Mm-hmm. You're probably get punished. Too. Like you know what I mean? Like you don't have a you don't have an advocate. You don't have the power to do it. Look at what happened at Rutgers. That only the guy only got fired because video got leaked out. Mm-hmm. I mean, the guy who blew the whistle on that was an assistant coach originally, Eric Murdoch, a former player, not at Rutgers, but a, a former, a good, really good college basketball player. People in Providence. my generation, we remember him. Yeah, um, mm-hmm. he blew a whistle and he's canned. <laughs> like, 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 and that wasn't it. wasn't It wasn't the players who blew the whistle. It was him. And the only reason the coach left it's because there was video it was like a ray rice kind of thing right so there's video it's not really real to most people it's like oh it's just tough love and that's and that's the thing it's like i i uh you know there is this sort of long-standing cultural thing in, in, in coaching that this is okay like berating people screaming at them th- just basically acting like a five-year-old right like acting like a very unhappy five-year-old is useful and, nece- and necessary and that's how you get the best out of players. That's how you get. That's how you make boys into men. There's all this kind of cultural baggage that's layered onto it. Do you think there's a racial layer onto this as well? Uh, there might be. I mean, we're generally talking about not always, but we're talking about a lot of times 
uh, in, in major college basketball we're talking about and major college football we're talking about white head coaches and predominantly black athletes. But I'm not sure in that case if it's completely racial because I I think uh, you know there are there are lots of African American coaches too and I think there's a lot of subscription uh, to that theory as well. I mean I said culturally like I said not everyone thinks this is bad is what I'm trying to say. Like I do think culturally there's a there's a large group of people that are like, this is necessary, this is even good, this is how it works. This is what made me a man. I'm glad my, co- I mean, I, I was kind of engaging in debate on this on Twitter, and some people were telling me, I'm glad, I had a coach who did this to me, and I'm glad they did, right? Mm. That's that's what uh, oftentimes uh, abuse victims say. It's true, that's also true. They try to justify true. it you know, down the I'm, line. I'm not an expert on psychology here, and I think you're right about that. Um, but I, I mean, I, what I, what I, the point I tried to make to people when I was talking about this and the point I make now is none of this is necessary. It's just not. It's not. It might be. There, look, there are times maybe screaming at someone does motivate someone in that moment and you get the result you want as a coach, right? Or you get your way. Maybe melting down does help sometimes. I don't, I don't think with these coaches, honestly, that's the other thing is I don't think it's that like – when you have an emotional meltdown, I don't think man, these guys aren't acting, right? It's not like, oh, I'm the master of puppets here and I'm going to pretend to have a big emotional meltdown because I know it'll motivate this one guy to play harder. Uh, I think these guys are actually just losing their temper because like, they're not, the game's not going the way they want it. I think they're actually just like, emotionally immature. I don't think it's like they're, they're, they're really like, all zen-like inside, but they're pretending to be mad because they know that's the right button to push. I, I really don't think that happens very often. So that's I mean, that's the other thing here too. Like we should remember, like no, this is actually a fifty-year-old man that can't like control their temper sometimes. Um, Let me throw this at yeah. you: the Zion cam. Zion, um, amazing. The Zion cam. Oh, the Zion cam. Um, Do you hear about that? Yeah, ridiculous. Yeah, it's ridiculous. What, what do we say about that? CBS with their own camera following and exploiting Zion Williamson for entire games. I mean, the best point that's been made about it, I think a lot of people made this point, which is like, if Zion did that himself, he would make himself ineligible under NCA amateurs. <laughs> <laughs> it's a perfect example of how the expert, it's a perfect example of how everything's a double standard and everything works one way to benefit one side of the, of the, of the parties here involved. Um, like, I don't, again, I have no problem if CBS wants to have a Zion cam, but that should come in the context of when there's negotiations with CBS for all that TV money, like a fairly and freely negotiated cut of that money should be going to Zion and all the other players that make it possible. So, you know, like in an NBA game, if they have like a LeBron cam or next year they have ESPN decides a Zion's you know, rookie debut, they want to have a Zion cam too. But anyway, no one would be upset. It'd be cool. You know what I mean? Or like, whatever. I don't, I don't want to watch him the whole game, whatever. But I mean, you know what I'm saying? Like, I don't think the idea of it in itself is bad, but what it symbolizes is definitely bad. Mm. And, and, and like I said, like, the fact that, I mean, it gets to like the other, I mean, the, this is another part of the college sports exploitation that is very obvious. You know, like, go back to the whole shoe gate earlier this year with Zion. Like, the exploding Nike. He's wearing Nikes so that his coach and school can get paid for him to wear them. He should be able to get paid for wearing them. 
like it's not that it's not that controversial or complicated. That's one one of the things that is amazing about the uh, the NCAA, and really to me speaks to the the level of the NCAA not only being greedy and the schools being greedy, but also just being really hung up on wanting to have all the power because it's really ultimately not just about money; it's really about power. The money is an outgrowth of the power, right? The freedom you have, the protections you have. Do you have the right and the ability to negotiate or not? And the schools do, and the players don't. Um, if you go look at the Nike thing, right? Like, there's it's it speaks to that whole thing. If 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 of all these schools in the NCA just never wanted to actually pay a dollar in salary to any of these athletes, right? Okay. At the very least, they could be like, well, go ahead and make whatever money you can on the side. Like, we're not going to tell you you can't do that. But they're so greedy and so hooked on power, they tell them that too. It's not enough to be like, hey, we're Duke. We're not going to pay you. You want to come here and play? Great. We'll give you a scholarship. That's it. But they're also like, we're also going to have rules that you can't get paid for wearing Adidas or Nike or whatever. You can't monetize uh, your Instagram feed. Think of all the money that these athletes leave on the table. And by the way, Zion's a great example. I mean, he's like the most, he's a phenomenon, right? He's the most well-known popular player in a long time. But there are lots of athletes on a much smaller scale, not just in the revenue sports, who have social media followings, who have some degree of celebrity and fame within their sport, within their world, within their community, within the town, their, the city, the school that they're playing at, that, okay, like maybe they wouldn't be worth a millions of dollars Nike contract like Zion, but Maybe uh, they'd be worth a small, you know, equipment deal with the company, or maybe uh, just some booster wants to take them out to dinner, their team out to dinner a lot, or slip them a little bit of cash under their under in an envelope to help them out for the semester or something. Like, why can't? Why? Why is there even a rule? Like, why does anyone think it's even okay? There's any kind of rule preventing that. If you or I, Dave, were to go give a chemistry student five thousand dollars an envelope and be like, "Hey, study hard this semester. This will help take care of your stuff." We'd be looked at as supporters of education. Right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it'd be like, that's a nice thing, man. We might be able to go to IRS and be like, hey, I'd like to write that off. <laughs> Can you imagine the chemistry student then being suspended? You the FBI coming after you. <laughs> yeah, seriously. And that, that was actually, I, I want to get to that, but, um, and you've been really generous with your time, but I got to ask you, um, just a word association with, with Zion's coach, Mike Shashevsky. Uh, is a word. <laughs> That's my yeah. word. Uh, um, I mean, look, obviously a great basketball coach, but obviously has figured out how to sort of set up and game this system. You know, he's surpassed Calipari now. I mean, he figured out, he figured out what I'm done even better than Calipari. He figured out how to take Team USA and turn that and Nike and just sort of turn all that into like benefiting him and his program. And more power too. I'm like, I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm not. I'm, I'm definitely someone who who has spent a lot of time like happy when Duke loses in the tournament. But whatever. I mean, that's fine. Like he's really good at what he does. Like I have no problem with that. I think the stuff where he's like attached to a leadership institute at his school is really corny and stupid. But I feel that way about all sports coaches. Like give him, you know, he's good at basketball coaching. Like can that just, can that just be enough? Like do we have to then have all these like books about coaching from the heart and ten ways to win the game of sports in life and how like being like Coach K will help you hit your third quarter sales targets. Like that stuff, I think is pretty ridiculous. But and okay, we could just, say just, the fact that Greg Popovich has never written a book like that is just further evidence that he's just the goat. Yeah, no, I think it says something, right? But 
but Coach K, and look, he's he's really good at basketball coaching. Like, you can't take that away from him. And like, you know, like a lot of his players, uh, you know, seems to have good relationships with them afterwards. I, I'm sure not all, but I mean, like, I I mean, it's never. What I don't like about him is that he really benefits from the system of exploitation, and he never speaks out against it. But I feel that way about a lot of his coaches, and I don't I don't know what he feels privately. Look, I've talked to over the years, and surprisingly, increasingly, in the last couple of years. I've spoken to coaches, people who work in athletic departments. Privately, most of them don't actually support the current system. Most of them actually think players should be able to get more. But they're all cowards. Like, none of them will ever publicly say it unless they've retired or unless they're done, right? There's this huge omerta in college sports. It's this total code of silence. It's like, don't speak out against the family. Don't speak out against the way things are. Um, I think that also says something about how corrupt and bad the system is. When like, when people say one thing in private and everything publicly, yeah, like there's a weird sort of like force of pressure to not to not to not rock the boat. And and you know, I mean, and that's what's crazy. It's like again, these coaches they all benefit from it, right? They benefit financially. There's more money available to pay them because there's less going to players. Um, but a lot of them do know it's wrong, and I do wish that. I mean, the the. I always, I always remember there's one coach, I'll never forget this, I was talking to him privately, um, I can't reveal his name because he didn't give me permission, although I don't think he's actually in coaching right now, I wish I could reveal his name because it's really interesting who he actually is, and I asked him, what would it take, he spent like 10 minutes off the record, like really eloquently laying out everything that was exploitative about the current system, and by the way, this coach, which is unusual, had a background in, in finance, and this might, if you really go and Google and think about it, you might be able to figure out who he is. Um, so he actually understood this at a more sophisticated level than a lot of coaches do. Uh, he spent like 10 minutes breaking this down. And at the end of it, I, I turned to him and I said, what would it take for you to say all of that publicly? And he looked at me and he laughed and he said, probably four national championships. <laughs> so That's that gets good. back to Coach K in a way because... If there's one guy who could just say, you know what, shit's unfair. This is wrong. Just say it straight up. This is wrong. These guys should have the freedom to benefit the way I do, the way my, my colleagues do, the way everyone else in the system does. If there's one guy who could say that and no danger of losing his job, no danger of any real fallout. The only danger to him would be about a week of having to answer phone calls and elaborate and people talking about him on PTI for two days and then everyone would just move on. It's Coach K. He is secure. He is set. He's influential. Yeah, maybe not even two days on PTI. Right. Because it would just be like Coach K speaks, and then we'd find out uh, Robert Kraft's videotape would leak, and then they'd talk <laughs> about something else. And people, and people look up to him. So it would actually, in a small way, it would a small way would help move the needle even more towards people being like, you know what, you're right. This isn't fair. This should be changed. And like I said, he's in a position to do it. He doesn't, and that's kind of where the uh, really comes to comes to me. Because I don't know, maybe he just doesn't believe it. I don't know. I don't know what he really believes. But he's been around this for a long time. He's not a stupid guy. I'm sure he sees it. I'm sure he's thought about it. And to just kind of go along, going along, and just reaping all the giant rewards he reaps, it's disappointing to me. It's kind of gross. All right, I got one more for you. You've been super patient. Just 
word association or paragraph association with solutions? Open it up. The, the solution here, so this is something I've written about. I'd encourage everybody to go to um, Deadspin. I've written about this there, probably in the most like least technical, least legalist. I mean, I've written about subjects so much. A lot of times you're analyzing court cases and you get into sort of the weeds of this. But there's a piece I wrote for Deadspin um, about this time last year. It is, I think the headline is something like, here's how to pay college athletes. But the point is really simple, which is everyone says, well, what's your plan? How are we actually going to do this, right? If you're going to let them be paid, then we have to have some sort of system. And my point is like, no, that's the whole problem. That's the way the NCAA does it now. We do pay them right now. We have a whole system, and that's the problem. The solution is open it up. We don't need any system. You actually don't need to do anything. Just let it be like everything else in America. We don't have a system where all schools agree how to pay chemistry professors or how to pay athletic directors or how to pay coaches or how to pay presidents at universities. We don't have a system where they all agree what should we offer uh, talented computer science students in terms of scholarships and benefits. What do we offer our postdocs? How do we get them into our labs? How do we get the best law students here? There's no system. We don't have a system for everybody who's a sports journalist in America where Sports Illustrated and ESPN and The Athletic all get together and agree, well, here's, here's the pay scale for everybody. No, we don't do that. We don't need to do that. We don't need a system of college sports. Get rid of amateurism, and people will end up getting what their actual value is. Get rid of all these rules. The only rules that should exist, in my opinion, in terms of the money in college sports, should be if you know, you know, if you get uh, a cash envelope from a booster, you got to report that to the IRS. That's it. If, if a car dealer wants to sign you, right, to be in a commercial and you're an athlete, great. We have contract law for that already. If your Cal and Stanford are competing for you and you're an Olympic swimmer, they both want you to come swim at their school, and Cal offers a $100,000 signing bonus, and Stanford says, we can only offer 50000 but we'll give you two years at law school or three years of law school, pay your whole law school, come here, and you want to go to law school, great. We have contract law that can handle all of that. We don't need to create any kind of new system. We don't need any rules. Like, it works fine, but it works fine for coaches. It works fine for everybody right now. The, the one thing that people will say is, well, what about Title IX? Okay, that's actually great. Like, Title IX... Is, is not something that requires necessarily dollar-for-dollar dollar matching. It requires equality of opportunity within education, within places that get federal funding for education. Now, how that's interpreted is open to some debate. Um, but in a world where college athletes were free to realize their value and negotiate for their value and accept bids for their value and outside sources of income and all that good stuff, you know, the absolute, I'm going to put this in air quotes, worst case scenario might be um, if you're Alabama, you're competing with LSU for uh, a top high school quarterback in the country, and you're like, here, we're going to pay you, you know, half a million dollar signing bonus. That's how, that's how good you are. We think you're going to help us win a national championship this year. And if there's a Title IX interpretation that comes from the federal government or comes from lawsuits or comes from the Department of Education that says, We've looked at the situation, and the way we interpret it is if you pay a half-million-dollar signing bonus 
to male athlete, you know, you've got to spend another half million dollars to female athletes. That's great for women's athletics. That's fantastic. And if Alabama only had a half million dollars total to allocate to that, well, then the most they'd be able to give that quarterback would be 250 grand. They are 250 grand would go to female athletes. And that's a win for everybody. Female athletes have more money. That quarterback has more money. How's that bad? People always say, oh, what about Tyler Nine? It's like, that's good. And there's one more thing, by the way. People will say, well, and, and this even, by the way, this even creeps into federal court, which is crazy and disingenuous. People will say, oh, well, there's just no money, or, oh, if you had an open market, then well, well, these, 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 these athletic departments would go out of business. And it's like, no. No profitable line of business has ever gone out of business because they had to pay their workers more. Um, they're not going to pay them more than they can afford. Like, that's the thing. That's like, when I say we don't need a system, it's like, then why don't we have the same system for anything else? Why isn't why aren't universities going out of business left and right because they can't figure out how to pay their professors? They're overbidding for their professors. They're overbidding for like the best doctors for their medical schools. And then their medical schools shut down. That's not happening because people can figure out how to do this. It's not that hard. It wouldn't be any different college sports. Okay, now, Patrick, you've been so generous with your time. This is good stuff. Um, last thing I just wanted to ask you, just because I ask this of all our guests what kind of music you listening to these days huh. last time i was on this is a while ago i was listening to bossa nova music and there was a whole yes, i remember that no i had gone me, uh... i had gone to thailand for vacation and the resort i was staying at had a lot of bossa nova and i was like really relaxed and into it um <laughs> that was a while ago uh that was what do i listen to these days you know what i've actually been listening to a lot of 80s pop these days nice yeah, feeling nostalgic, man. I'm in my early 40s. I'm sure you know <laughs> well, that place. I know that place. 80s pop never hurt anybody. No, 80s pop but... is good. 80s pop is really good. 80s pop is a lot better than the pop that came after it, in my opinion. And that, I'm obviously biased because I was a small child in the 80s. So everybody everybody has special emotional connection to like the music when they were like a little. Um, but I stand by it. I think it's good. We're going to... We're going to bust right in here with the opening beat to Only in My Dreams by Debbie Gibson. <laughs> Let's play some new way. Uh, uh, oh, by the way, you know what? You know what is... <laughs> Dave, it, uh, it sounds like you have an open invitation at karaoke here. Oh, d- d- don't try to stop me. You know what, even by the way, I want to I point something out about 80s pop, which is something that is really dead and buried and, and probably deservedly so, but also like I kind of miss is 80s pop songs were really good at slipping in like really quick and effective saxophone solos. Oh, yeah. And it's like it's a whole aesthetic. Like I don't think you could do it now. Like it would just be like, like, it, like it, it would sound like too alien and foreign. In like to, it wouldn't fit with today's pop music at all, but and, and even back then, I'm like, this is cheesy and kind of corny. But now I'm also like, it's also kind of wonderful. Like I wish this would make a comeback. <laughs> like it's kind of just sounds different now. Maybe it's just me. That's awesome. Hey Patrick, thanks so much for making the time, man. Really appreciate it. No, it's really fun. Um, it's always fun. Let's let's do this again sometime soon. Sounds good.
That was Patrick Ruby, ladies and gents. We'll be back right after this message from The Nation magazine. We'll be back right after this, but first, a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. Okay, look, the need for independent journalism has never been more important, and The Nation brings it each and every week like they've been doing since 1865. I'm serious. This is what you got to read. It's The Nation Magazine. Go to thenation.com slash subscribe, and please never forget that when you support The Nation magazine, you are also supporting the continued existence of this podcast. So please subscribe. Go to www.thenation.com slash subscribe. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. And now I've got some choice words about the Mike Trout contract. Okay, look, the number itself is eye-popping, sending the jaws of media members and baseball aficionados to the floor with the speed of a Randy Johnson fastball. Mike Trout of the Los Angeles Angels will play the next 12 years for $430 million, the largest contract in the history of U.S. sports and the biggest number ever earned by a baseball player by over 100 mil. So does Mike Trout deserve it? Of course he does. Baseball is a $10 billion a year business. The Angels have a $3 billion cable contract. And Mike Trout is the greatest player of his generation. Only 26 years old, two MVP awards, and second in the voting four times, and the highest career war that's wins against replacement through the age of 26 of any position player in the history of the game, ahead of Ty Cobb and Mickey Mantle, and Ty Cobb doesn't even count because Ty Cobb played in a segregated era, and he was kind of a dick. Um, Now, in many ways, Mike Trout is also the perfect symbol for baseball in 2019. He's brilliant on the field, yet almost completely anonymous off of it. The $430 million man could walk through LAX and go unrecognized unless he wore a t-shirt that read, Hi, my name is Mike Trout. He's not going to be the face of the sport. That baseball can both afford his contract and afford his anonymity speaks to a far broader economic problem. While Trout and former free agents Bryce Harper and Manny Machado have contracts in excess of $1 billion combined, two out of three Major League Baseball teams have actually cut their payroll. The Pittsburgh Pirates are one of those teams with a payroll that's $15 million less than it was a year ago. Roughly 100 free agents are still out of work, including star players like closer Craig Kimbrell and former Cy Young winner Dallas Keuchel, still unsigned as opening day looms. Now, Tony Clark, the head of the Major League Baseball Players Association, says that the MLB is currently not in the business of putting the best teams on their squads. While superstars can earn unprecedented sums, most players are seen as cheap and expendable. Most solid or even all-star players are on the outside looking in. The problem, in my humble opinion, is that teams no longer see their financial fortunes tied primarily to putting a good product on the field. Revenue is tied less to ticket sales than to public subsidies for new stadiums and sweetheart cable television deals. Team owners have less incentive to pay the middle class of baseball talent, opting instead to organize their teams with haves and have-nots, a small group of lavishly paid players, and then a precarious mass. 
Yes, the minimum baseball salary is about 500 grand a year, but the average baseball career is between five and six years, with players finding themselves with few options once careers have ended. Now, the union believes that the root of the problem lies in how teams handle revenue sharing, where teams that spend over the salary cap must also divvy up their funds with the smaller market franchises. The union's problem is that the collective bargaining agreement says that teams must use these revenue-sharing funds to improve the franchise, but it doesn't specify that this money must necessarily be used on payroll. By August 15th, teams are required to break down how they are spending this money, or the union can request a full audit to see if these funds are just going into the pockets of the billionaire ownership class. What is certain is that the union has a fight on its hands to make sure that an increasingly wealthy ownership doesn't turn baseball into a neoliberal laboratory of haves and have-nots, with a declining middle class of talent and fans wondering what the hell happened to the local team. So good for Mike Trout, but know that his windfall is a cover for a larger rot. We'll be back right after this with a quick word from Edge of Sports. Hey everybody out there, this is Dave Zirin with the Edge of Sports Podcast. People got to know that we put this podcast on with elbow grease and, and bubble gum on a weekly basis. And we're proud of the work that we do. We love it. But we can't do it without support from you, the listener. So please go to patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod and support the podcast. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. Any little bit you might give to support the podcast actually makes a huge difference to the work we're trying to do. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. We appreciate you. Make no mistake about it. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. Now, it's time for the Just Stand Up Award. Just stand up and just sit your ass down. The Just Stand Up Award this week goes to Braden Holtby. I think he's the first hockey player to get this award in a very long time. He's the goalie for your Stanley Cup champions, the Washington Capitals. Braden Holtby turned down an invitation to go with the team to the White House to meet with the orange smear-in-chief Donald Trump. And this is what Braden Holtby said. He said, My family and myself, we believe in a world where humans are retreated with respect, regardless of your stature, what you're born into. You're asked to choose what side you're on. And I think it's pretty clear what side I'm on. That's Braden Holtby. Way to just stand up. The Just Sit Your Ass Down Award your ass down. Is someone we mentioned already. It's Tom Izzo, the 60-plus-year-old coach of the Michigan State Spartans, and the idea that him screaming at his freshman player Aaron Henry and putting a finger in his face somehow will cause the Aaron Henrys of the world to man up and become the kinds of players who can achieve in a difficult world. And also, just sit your ass down to everybody who says... People criticizing Tom Izzo are the reason why America is soft. That's crap. The reason why America is so incredibly fucked up is because we valorize people like Tom Izzo. And frankly, the fact that people are standing up against what Tom Izzo did on national television is actually hope for the future. So just sit your ass down to Tom Izzo and his defenders. Now's the time of the part of the show that we call Kaepernick Watch with the latest comings and goings of your exiled quarterback, Colin Kaepernick. 
Kaepernick watch this week is just the return of the Know Your Rights camp, which was in Baltimore over the weekend and was a huge success. I love that Colin Kaepernick was in Baltimore. I'm agitating with him. I sent him a message, please come to D.C., and he hit me back and said, D.C. is on our list. So let me tell you something. When they bring that Know Your Rights camp to D.C., it's going to be awesome. So thanks for hitting me back, Colin K. Thank you for um, everything you're doing with the Know Your Rights camps, and hopefully you'll come to D.C. soon because that would just be, that would be just live. So, yo, thanks to everybody for listening to the show this week. Thank you so much to Patrick Ruby for making the time. Thank you to everybody out there who supported last week's show. Y'all should listen to it. We talked to Katie Barnes about the attack on trans athletes. Go to edgeofsportspodcast.com if you want to listen to that podcast. If you want to support the show, go to patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. Please do so. Thank you so much to The Nation Magazine for sponsoring this pod. For everybody out there listening, please stay frosty. We are out of here. Peace. Peace.